It is a, a great honor, of course, to, to replace the speaker. Uh, I, <laughs> I, I, I couldn't help but think of the fact that the, the last time I made any a speech of any, well, that's like class, a uh, speech of any length of any, uh, uh, was be, to replace the speaker at the Lyceum graduate uh, uh, graduation this last year. And you know, I'm, I'm a Mexican, a little superstitious in all of it, superstition in us. So I thought, well, things always come in threes. And I wondered, what if I get a call in January from DC they need a replacement for the presidential inaugural address. <laughs> vanity, vanity. Uh, <clears throat> I, I did really think about uh, writing a lecture, completing a lecture uh, on uh, the Blessed Virgin. Uh, and I decided not to, though she will make an appearance in this speech, in this lecture. Uh, <clears throat> I, I thought that uh, the students would really enjoy, after Don Rags, to hear the uh, tutor admit that lying is a sin. Uh, uh, give, given the honor here, I hope you'll give me a few, minute, a few moments a few minutes, uh, to make a dedication here, a very heartfelt dedication uh, to teachers who have really uh, brought me in many ways, uh, innumerable ways, into the truth. Uh, and I, I have teachers here at the college that uh, uh, can't be uh, counted in many ways. What they've done for me certainly can't be counted or repaid. Uh, I, I think particularly of uh, my mathematics teacher every year, almost every year, uh, Mr. Shields, and of teachers in, every, uh, uh, in everything, uh, Mr. Newmeyer, Mr. Uh, uh, MacArthur, uh, but especially I want to dedicate this to my last teacher here, Mr. My last teacher, in some sense, in in, in uh, life, you always learn from everybody. My last principal teacher, Marcus Berquist, uh, and particularly because in him I saw the love of truth and the love of God to be as united as I've ever seen in a, a professor, if you will. Uh, and the other person to whom I want to dedicate this to is my first teacher, my mother. Um, and I want to point out how in some way this lecture uh, is here because of uh, things she said to me when I was five years old. Uh, two very little stories. The first, I think I was probably a, 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 a little kid that adults liked. I was just as serious as I am now, maybe more, and I was just, I was just as much of a ham as I am now, too. And uh, so uh, I was asked by the secretary at, our, at my mother's school to spend an afternoon at her house. And I can still remember, it's the only thing I remember, uh, being out in the backyard in this little swing set. And the 16-year-old's uh, the, the uh, daughter is pushing me. She's behind me on the swing. And she says to me, how old is your mother? And I said, 16. <laughs> and she said, Oh, no, your mother's not 16. And I said, yes, she is. She said, your mother can't be 16. I said, my mother told me she's 16. And I, this went on, I don't know how long, before I realized there's something here I don't understand. <laughs> the next moment I remember is coming into the door and saying, how old are you? <laughs> <laughs> she's, she's still a little upset when I ask her that question. Uh, um, 
Uh, that moral feeling, if you will, in some ways is uh, still in me, I, I guess. Uh, the other thing that happened is uh, we were in the drive-through at Jack in the Box, and my mother was uh, talking about someone who was trying to uh, 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 urge her to get my brother baptized very quickly. Uh, uh, she was just kind of putting it off a few weeks. So I was five years old. And uh, she said, uh, so-and-so is very frank. And I said, what does frank mean? She said, frank means she says what she thinks. I think this is the first moment I, I really focused my attention on virtue. And I thought of how, how excellent that was, how desirable it was, and how hard. And I was afraid. I thought, wow, I, I don't think I'll ever be able to be frank. Uh, uh, I thought it was the same way at five years old uh, as I was five years old uh, all my life. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, through her help, especially pointing out people who are frank uh, over the years, admiring them, uh, liking them, hating flattery, uh, 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 loving, uh, uh, frank conversation, being very frank with me, but in a kind and generous way. Uh, it, that is something that I, I, I hope I've uh, uh, come to love very much and, and uh, to possess uh, some share in. Um, uh, I also want to point one out, one, one little thing. Sometimes people don't like theology don't enjoy it. I, they, they, they like, uh, I'm talking about people who are good and so on in, in many ways, uh, they like religion, don't particularly like uh, theology, find it dry and so on. What, what I suggest is uh, ask yourself whether you pray enough. Uh, you, there's no theology without, there's, sacred doctrine doesn't have any joy without the gift of wisdom, and the gift of wisdom comes through prayer. So uh, I, I urge you to always think about that in these things. And in light of that, I, I also think St. Thomas suggests that there must be a guardian, there must be an archangel that cares for the common good of our school. Uh, that's what archangels do is take care of common goods. So I urge you to pray to that angel, uh, as well as uh, uh, St. John, uh, St. Paul, uh, St. Augustine, St. Thomas, uh, uh, in, in your heart here as, as I read, because uh, they, they are very much in this uh, work here. Uh, so if they would pray for us. People usually raise questions about lying under legalistic light. Is this kind of lie wrong? Does this manner of speaking constitute a lie? What else can someone do in such circumstances? And so on. Invariably, the concern of such discussions is with praise and blame. If reference is made to human excellence or virtue, this virtue is conceived, in my opinion, as something of a burden. Even introduction of charity as a principle in such arguments seems to confuse it with amiability or is lacking its full supernatural excellence. In this reflection, I will consider lying, as I believe St. Thomas does virtually everywhere in his theological writings, using the light proper to theology. Thus, I intend to establish my stance toward the act of lying in the teachings of sacred scripture, as St. Paul and St. John received their teaching about lying from God. First, I will consider passages where St. Paul and St. John teach that the lie is opposed to the truth as they have found it in Christ. Then I'll examine the nature of this opposition. In a second letter to the Corinthians, St. Paul is afraid the Corinthians believed he lied to them. In doing so, he clearly refers the truth of his speech back to the truth as it exists in Christ. He says, 
And in this confidence, I intended earlier to come to you so that you might have a second grace and through you to pass on to Macedonia and from Macedonia to return to you and from you to be hurried on to Judea. Wishing this, was I fickle? Or do I intend the things I intend according to the flesh so that I say, yes, yes, and no, no. But God is the assurance that our word to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, preached among you by us, was not yes and no, but in himself he was yes. For all the promises of God in him are yes. The guarantee of the truth of Paul's word is his conformity to Jesus Christ. Nothing in Christ denies or says no. Rather, he expresses the promises of his Father. He says yes. I understand the use of yes here to refer to the agreement in Christ with his Father. To correspond to the Father is Christ's nature, as he emphasizes with strange language. In himself, he was yes. The first letter of John describes the same antipathy between Christ and the lie. And you have been anointed by the Holy One, and all of you have knowledge. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know, and no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar if not the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Clearly, St. John is not claiming that every lie is a denial of Christ, but he is claiming that the truth and only truth can come to those anointed and thus conformed to Christ. No lie can come from the truth, but the Antichrist has the lie as his property. Now, this opposition may suggest that I'm I'm equating an April Fool's joke to denial of the Incarnation. Let me make clear that many actions are in some way opposed to the mysteries of our religion. The moral evaluation of such actions varies. Cremation has some opposition to the doctrine of resurrection. It is not in itself an evil act and may even sometimes be necessary on moral grounds. Contraception, however, opposed to the fertility by by which God became man, is always wrong, though on grounds prior to any distinctly Christian teaching. The moral evaluation of lying, even after I demonstrate its opposition to the mystery of the incarnate word, must, of course, be judged from the principles proper to the act. First, therefore, I will propose the sort of opposition to the truth of Christ found in the lie. Then I will consider the bearing of such opposition to to the Christian life. To manifest the lie's opposition to the truth in Christ, I will do three things. First, I will consider the truth as it exists in our words. Second, I will show that the sort of truth that exists in our words exists also in Jesus Christ. Third, I will show how the lie is opposed to Christ. Truth exists in our words in three ways. As soon as a man is aware of some being, he discovers truth insofar as it is true to say of that being that it exists. This first truth is nothing other than the correspondence or agreement between the words and the reality they signify. In this sense, words have things behind them. They have substance. But a man's words can also be compared to the awareness or conception of his intellect. The second truth exists when the words agree or correspond to this concept or conception. 
Such words have thought behind them. They mean something. Again, the same words can be compared not with the mind of the speaker, but with another mind, the hearer's mind. If these words are apt to produce truth in someone hearing them, they are true in a third way. These words have power. They communicate. Now, Christ is the word of God, but as the word of God, it cannot immediately be compared to our spoken words. These spoken words come forth from our minds in a material, sensible way. But if the word ever proceeded outside the Father, he would not be God. Thus, the sort of truth that exists in our words cannot exist in Christ merely insofar as he is the word of God. St. Thomas shows how the word of God can be compared to our spoken words through his incarnation. Just as our word conceived in the mind is invisible, but when expressed exteriorly by sound, it becomes sensible, so the word of God, according to his eternal generation in the bosom of the Father, exists invisibly. But through the incarnation, he became sensible to us. Wherefore, the incarnation of God's word is like the vocal expression of our word. Of course, when St. Thomas says the incarnation of God's word is like the vocal expression of our word, he means the vocal expression of our interior invisible word, that is, our conception of the reality signified. The word of God stands to the incarnate word, as a human thought or concept stands to the word that signifies that concept. The incarnate word is a visible, sensible expression of the invisible word of God. Insofar as the incarnate word, Jesus Christ, has some likeness to a spoken word, truth exists in him in the three ways truth exists in human spoken word. To my mind, St. John teaches this when he says in his gospel, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only begotten from his father, full of grace and truth. Clearly, the evangelist speaks here of a glory seen during and through his intimate association with Christ when Christ dwelt among us. Now, the first truth described above is an agreement between words and the reality they signify, as the sound dog agrees with some animal outside the mind. But the word of God is a concept proceeding in the divine mind, and the reality most properly known to the divine mind is God himself. So there's a correspondence between Jesus Christ and the reality he signifies. Jesus manifests to us the divine substance, As through a spoken word, our minds are turned to what it signifies. When we experience Jesus, our minds are turned to God himself. St. John confirms this agreement in saying that he has seen the glory of one full of grace and truth. The second truth mentioned above was an agreement between words and the concepts they signify, such as the agreement between the sound dog and the thought of the dog while one is thinking about it. Now, the word of God is himself the concept proceeding from the Father. In this sense, Jesus Christ manifests his divine person insofar as that person is the full understanding of God. 
Thus, St. John identifies his agreement between the man Jesus Christ and the word of God when he tells us that he has seen the glory as of the only begotten from his Father. The third truth found in human words is the power to cause truth in those who apprehend them. The incarnate word has this truth insofar as it causes truth in others. Principally, as is clear throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus Christ causes in others the knowledge of who he is. To manifest this is to manifest his Father, the true God, and his Spirit. Now, this is the main concern of St. John here, to tell us that through his intimate daily experience of Christ, his mind apprehended, through faith, of course, the glory of the Word of God. Of course, in telling us the power of Christ's truth works through John, yet immediately, in our minds too. A particular effect of the communication of divine truth through the truth in Christ is its conformity to our union with Christ. St. John was united to Christ as he dwelt among us. So he defines the liar and the Antichrist as one who denies this, as one who rejects Christ's manifestation of the divinity in his flesh. He describes, that is, St. John describes, the mystical body of Christ through, also through personal union with Christ. I am the vine, you are the branches. St. Paul, on the other hand, saw Christ in heaven joined mystically to the church. So his teaching, quoted earlier, about Christian honesty is occasioned by his dealings with the church in Corinth. His teaching about the Antichrist is provoked by errors in Thessalonica. He considers the power of the man of sin to manifest not God, but Satan, to other minds. Quote, but this, but this one's appearance will come by the working of Satan with all his power, with the signs and portents of falsehood, with full deception of wrong for those who perish because they did not accept the love of truth for their salvation. In our times, our communion with Christ is through the blessed sacrament. We do not see his humanity sensibly or by an intellectual vision. As St. Thomas sings in his Adorati Devote, on the cross, only his divinity was hidden, but here at the same time, even his humanity hides. Still, we join ourselves there to the same truth in, in the same Christ revealed to these saints, so that St. Thomas' hymn can continue acclaiming the person of the word in this sacrament. Nothing is more true than the, this word of truth. And remember, the truth he causes in us when we communicate is conformed to the union with him we seek there. This occurs, I suggest, because he operates supernaturally, yet through his humanity, as one man upon another. Now, a lie is a kind of falsehood, and falsehood is opposed to truth. But a lie is not merely the falsehood that arises when words do not co correspond to reality. Many false statements are errors rather than lies. But error arises when our thoughts do not correspond to reality. So even the erroneous statement, which is in one way false, may be in another way true. The speaker's words agree with his conception of reality, even though these words do not correspond to reality itself. Yet the lie does depend upon the falsehood between words and reality, for every liar believes that his words do not correspond to reality. He, 
He believes his words are empty and have nothing behind them. Still, what makes the lie a lie is that he uses words that do not correspond to his conception of reality. Such words do not reveal. They mask and hide the soul of the speaker, closing it up as if it were in a cave. Now, the lie is also a statement brought forth with the power to cause falsehood or to deceive. These words come between men like a wall instead of opening one soul to another. When the speaker knows the truth and has this purpose of deceiving, the lie lacks truth in all three ways. Such words lack any foundation in reality or thought. They refuse to share since they have nothing in them to share. So every lie is opposed to the truth in Christ insofar as it lacks correspondence with the speaker's concepts. In this way, the lie is opposed to the way Jesus Christ manifests his divine person, the Son of God. Everything we see in Jesus expresses in some way who the Word of God is. But the liar intends to hide his thought through his lie. Again, the liar believes his words do not agree with reality. When such falsehood exists in his words, it is opposed to the way Jesus manifests his divinity. Note, however, the lie shares this with all falsehood. Everything in Jesus expresses God. Everything responds to God with yes. But error and the lie correspond to nothing. They say no to reality. The lie is also speech able to cause falsehood in another's mind. When the speaker intends this, his lie is opposed to the truth in Christ insofar it is apt to cause truth in us. No one can turn to Christ in any way at any time without this power striving to bring forth supernatural truth within his mind. Christ's truth causes our faith. It causes every truth we bring forth from faith. It causes every truth we arrive at through the endeavor of sacred theology. It causes the truth we feel through the gift of wisdom cooperating with charity. At the heart of all this truth is the eternal truth that is the word of God. The lie, however, reveals nothing. No mind has ever been directly illuminated by means of a lie. Rather, the lie darkens the hearer's mind and becomes an obstacle to further light. In these three ways, a lie may be opposed to the truth of Christ. Of course, I propose this abstractly, referring to its nature as speech and altogether ignoring its content. But I must make clear that even this opposition is more insidious than it seems. Opposition is usually manifest. Hot is not cold. Affirmation is not denial. The half is not the whole. And though the true is not the false, the lie, from its very nature, pretends to truth. It comes forth into the world under the guise of truth. In this sense, according to its nature, the lie mocks the truth in Christ. Thus, the Antichrist is defined by the lie. He is not only against Christ, he will come in place of Christ. Christ receives his truth from the Father. The Antichrist, from Satan, has made up a truth all his own. The Antichrist will reveal no one and nothing, not even himself. As Jesus says, 
I came in the name of my Father, and you do not accept me. If another comes in his own name, you will accept him. Having shown the lie's opposition to Christ, I turn to consideration of how this opposition bears on Christian life. Recall my claim above that opposition to some mystery of our faith may not touch the essence of an act. Cremation of the dead does not demand disbelief in resurrection. Along these lines, it is clear the lie need not be opposed to the truth of Christ in its content or even in the purpose intended by the speaker. But there is still the question whether the lie is useful in Christian life, whether we can, in an integral Christian act, tell a lie. Now, Christian life is the way of truth by which we walk toward the truth. Christ is the beginning and the end of this way of truth. He is its beginning insofar as his truth is the principal cause of our movement toward the truth. So he says... As light, I came into the world so that everyone who believes in me may not remain in darkness. He is also the end of this way insofar as the God fully revealed in him is the end of our movement toward truth. So he says, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. But Christ is also the way itself. I am the way and the truth and the life. He is the way insofar as he shows us the way to the truth in his own life. But he is also the way for us insofar as his truth causes each of us to be another Christ. And progress in the spiritual life, movement toward the truth, is nothing other than the growth in us of Christ, the new man who puts aside falsehood and tells the truth. To judge whether the lie can be useful on this way of truth, I will consider the question three ways. First, I will ask whether its use can be the effect of its principal cause, which is the truth of Christ at work in us. Second, I will ask whether the new man, who is a secondary, though proper cause of his walk toward the truth, can be the cause of the lie through the principles proper to his own agency. Third, I will ask whether a lie can be the means to the end of beatitude, the truth as fully revealed in Christ. Note that a negative answer to any of these questions suggests that the lie is not licit, but the theologian is not principally interested in assigning assigning or weighing blame. The theologian always seeks to conform his science as much as possible to God's own science. But God himself has no direct knowledge of evil. He knows how far we have fallen from him into the darkness, even to the eternal darkness of damnation itself. But God does not pay attention to such things. He does not turn his light upon them. He knows such things in the manner he knows what is not on his mind. So the bridegroom says to the foolish virgins, I do not know you. The theologian pursues these questions in such detail from love of the Christian life. There he encounters Christ as working within him, shedding light of every kind, especially on the path to eternal life. Everywhere in the Christian life, the theologian sees Christ's truth, 
This appears most admirably in the second part of St. Thomas' Summa Theologiae, where the study of peccata, sins, must principally be understood as mistakes in the movement of the rational creature unto God. The first question is whether the lie can be useful to the Christian insofar as he's immediately and properly moved by Christ in any act. Two reasons convince me that the answer is demonstratively negative. First, Jesus Christ has the fullness of truth in him as mentioned above. This truth causes truth in other minds and this truth causes truth in their speech. But such truth demands that Christ as such cannot in any way cause falsehood. A likeness from the syllogism helps. True premises can never cause a false conclusion, except accidentally, insofar as one argues against the rules of logic. In this way, too, Christ might cause falsehood insofar as he moves his members, namely, insofar as accidentally we take occasion of his truth to tell a lie. Another reason is that a proper effect of the threefold truth that dwells in Christ is to bring about his, this threefold truth in his members. Each member of Christ is a visible sign of the word of God, able to represent his truth. Through such a sign, Christ is now, ab- through such a sign, Christ is now visible to the world in the church. The members of the church manifest God and the person of the word and the causal power of Christ's truth as these have been manifested to the church in Christ. But manifestly, no lie has a share in such a power. Again, telling a lie is inconsistent with this truth in us just as it has no place in him. If he were to lie, the believer could not believe anything he says. A prudent man weighs everything a known liar says, especially if that liar proposes that the lie is sometimes licit. For this reason, in my understanding, St. Thomas claims in interpreting the teacher of... For this reason, in my understanding, St. Thomas claims in interpreting the teaching of St. Augustine, if a lie, when uttered, should be judged licit, that very judgment tends to the overturning of the faith. The second question is whether the new man finds lies useful in his Christian life. Now, the new man comes to be through the infusion of sanctifying grace. Through this grace, he is able to walk toward the truth. But this so surpasses human nature that grace must bring forth in him, according to the man's various powers, many virtues or excellences, as well as gifts of inspiration, by which he is able to perform actions proportioned to the life of Christ in him. Faith, our present share in Christ's beatific vision, is the first of these excellences, upon which the use of all the others depends. So St. Paul teaches, the just man will live by faith. Every act belonging to the Christian as such proceeds explicitly or implicitly through his faith. To claim, therefore, that the lie is useful in Christian life is to propose that it can be used by some virtue, in dependence upon faith, in that virtue's proper operation. St. Thomas considers the question of lying in the Summa with regard to one virtue, that of honesty or truthfulness. I will first consider this question in relation to honesty in some detail. 
But since other virtues, such as charity, occasion difficulties about lying, I will also discuss the question with respect to other virtues. Answers to these questions will provide some opportunity to discuss the various sorts of lie that Christians hope to justify, the dutiful lie, for example, and lies in joking, as well as how the Christian judges his debt to tell someone the truth and the consequent legitimacy of hiding the truth. Now, the virtue concerned most immediately with lying is called veritas in Latin, that is, truth, though St. Thomas suggests veracitas, veracity, as an alternate, perhaps a clearer name. In English, honesty seems the most exact name. Honesty is that excellence or virtue by which we are honest and tell the truth. This is the name I will employ. Aristotle thinks the virtue unnamed in Greek, but gives it the name aletheia, truth. And he calls the man who has it truthful and a truth lover. But there are other virtues and habits that concern the truth. Most obviously, many intellectual virtues and gifts concern the truth, primarily as it exists in the intellect rather than in speech. Justice is concerned with telling the truth insofar as such an act has the notion of debt by some positive law. Thus, a man who is more just than honest will not commit perjury, though he may otherwise tell many lies. Again, the virtue of magnanimity, which is itself a part of fortitude, has some concern for the truth, insofar as the magnanimous man is frank. He does not fail to speak his mind from cowardice or pusillanimity. But the virtue of honesty is concerned with truth, as St. Thomas says, insofar as saying the truth is itself a good act. Now, St. Thomas considers the virtue of honesty whose proper act is to speak the truth, to be a part of justice. There are many ways in which a virtue may be part of some cardinal virtue. Here the reason is that honesty, as St. Thomas says, agrees with justice in part, but in part it falls short of its complete definition. In this manner, piety is another part of justice. A man owes a debt to his parents for the life and education they have given him. Piety falls short of the notion of full justice. Piety falls short of the full notion of justice because one can never finish paying the debt. St. Thomas mentions two things honesty shares with the nature of justice and one in which it falls short. In agreement with justice, honesty has some reference to another person. It also agrees with justice insofar as justice establishes equality between things. For, as he says, honesty brings forth signs that are equal or adequate to the thing signified. The first sort of truth. Yet justice concerns something owing or due to another according to a legal debt, that is, an obligation based upon positive law. While honesty concerns something owed to another according to moral debt, an obligation founded in the nature of things or natural law. In a study of honesty, St. Thomas shows that the lie is opposed to the truth in three ways, according to the three sorts of falsehood it can possess. But he clearly understands the lie to be opposed to the virtue of honesty, according to every one of these falsehoods. He recognizes that if there is no intention of saying something false, the second sort of falsehood, 
the statement does not have the complete notion of a lie. And thus the speaker is not lying. Yet he still sees some opposition to honesty, even in accidentally saying something false. He says that someone should say something true intending to say what is false is more opposed to honesty, that is, to truth insofar as it is a moral virtue, than if he should say something false intending to say something true. Intending to say something true while actually saying something false is, according to St. Thomas, in some way opposed to honesty. He says this despite his recognition that there is no moral fault here, no defect in the will. This fact that merely uttering something false against his intention is opposed to his honesty manifests the integrity of the honest man's love of the truth. St. Thomas does not, to my knowledge, enter into this beyond the passage quoted. Nonetheless, the statement brings into relief something quite clear, that the honest man, through this virtue, desires to tell the truth, not only out of his concern for his moral state or his culpability, but also from his love for the truth itself. The more the more a man is honest, as anyone can see, the more he will take care to consider what he says, lest he express something false while believing it to be true. No doubt St. Thomas felt pain when he corrected his own teachings here and there. For example, regarding the question whether Christ ever learned or whether the grace obtained in circumcision before Christ could overcome any sin. Such pain may have principally involved the fear that he may have been accidentally a principle of false opinion in another soul. But he must also have felt some pain merely because his teaching was opposed to reality. What he had taught was not the truth. He would have felt pain likewise if he learned of errors he had made about the material structure of the natural universe. Aristotle, considering the possession of this virtue in its merely natural form, describes such a man as philalethes, a lover of the truth. St. Thomas glosses this passage with this statement. For he loves the truth and says what is true even in those things in which it does not matter much toward harming or helping, and much more in those things in which to say something true or false makes a difference toward another's harm or assistance. And this is because he abhors the lie in itself, secundum se, as something vile, and not only insofar as it opens the way to another's harm. Aristotle says that such a man is worthy of praise. Thus, by the virtue of truth, a man loves the truth and hates every sort of falsehood. Spoken falsehood. Other virtues hate other kinds of falsehood. Nor is it difficult to see that in an integrated, harmonious Christian life, Christian honesty loves and pursues the three sorts of truth that exist in words, insofar as such truth has a likeness to the truth in the incarnate word. The Christian loves spoken truth as having its power to manifest reality and thought, especially when these are supernatural, as having its power to enlighten others 
through a likeness to the truth in Jesus Christ, which is the very reason God loved our world enough to make it. Again, this truth is loved by Christian honesty as making the speaker a visible sign of Christ through filling his every word with truth. Yet again, Christian honesty loves the truth in his speech and actions as manifesting the truth of Christ to the world. He loves spoken truth in all its integrity, especially as it is a sign capable of moving the minds who see in this integrity the power and divinity of Jesus Christ. Nonetheless, a difficulty arises through the consideration of honesty. Some claim that circumstances sometimes bring it about that the only way to tell the truth is to use a lie. The difficulty proposes that sometimes the truth can only be told by means of falsehood. I understand this to have the following force. That is true force. Sometimes one speaks truly and in agreement with the virtue of honesty, although the statement, if understood in too material a manner, may seem false. Metaphorical expression speaking in person. Excuse me, metaphorical expression, speaking in persona, as if the speaker were someone else, and speech according to some imagination, as in play, all seem to me to be justified by such an understanding. I would include here speech that expresses part of the truth explicitly and part of the truth implicitly. This is how St. Thomas understands Job to complain. He expresses the passion of his heart as to affectionate friends. Implicitly, he expresses that his passion is consistent with his trust in God through the seven days he sat silent before he expressed that passion. So the statement, my God is a rock, uses a metaphorical expression and can be said with perfect honesty. In various circumstances, such words express the truth that a man longs to express more appropriately than any non-metaphorical statement. Yet one who misunderstands the word rock here, precisely according to the proper force of the word, rather than its improper metaphorical sense, must judge the speaker an idolater or a liar. Something similar is true of hyperbole, understatement, irony, and so on. Again, many things are said in persona, taking on a character, with no more indication than a tone of the voice or the context of other statements. An honest man may say something implying, so the fool would say, or so the avaricious man. And this in no way compromises his honesty. St. Thomas explains the truth of objections in scholastic debate this way. The objector speaks as if bearing the person of someone asserting something false. Such speech clearly agrees with honesty. Uh, some students were over watching uh, the, the ballet Spartacus uh, uh, last weekend, and uh, at some point, Spartacus comes out of his, his uh, tent early in the morning and sees uh, his bride uh, dancing and uh, goes up to her and dances with her. And, and I said, uh, "That's the way to make up. In the, that's the way to wake up in the morning." Uh, <laughs> and I, I trust that was understood uh, with the right intention. Uh, uh, <laughs> so, Someone who recognizes, understands the passion, but uh, uh, has it uh, governed, uh, sorry, as someone who recognizes the passion, uh, uh, sorry, as someone who recognizes the passion that another man would feel who's, who's uh, given to a, an honest but uh, worldly passion. Uh, uh, and uh, I, I'll leave out, 
I won't say what David Langley said. <laughs> Again, when children play, they see many things not according to their conception of reality, but to conceptions that have reference to some imagination. What they say is in no way false, since it does not refer to reality outside the mind. To speak to children as well as to adults in such a context, according to that imagination, has therefore nothing false in it. Uh, when I was a student here, one of our, uh, uh, one, uh, my uh, colleagues, uh, uh, David Hauseel, ran, uh, ran into the little boy, David Kaiser, who had a stick and he was obviously uh, fighting as if with a sword. And David Hauseel went up to him and said, Hey, little David, you enjoying your little sword? And he looked at it and looked at David and said, It's not a sword, it's a stick. <laughs> now, such an explanation, speaking according to imagination, clearly explains all acting and fiction. Perhaps the same thing can be said when speaking to someone mad or someone losing his wits, though I think there must be some indication, such as a tone of voice, that he does so according to the imagination and is not turning the hearer's mind toward reality. Nor is it difficult to see that such a context can occasion outright lies, not necessarily evil ones. Uh, there's a convalescent home I heard of, and they have this terrible problem. The old people uh, uh, decide they're going to go home. Uh, and they would just walk out, and they find them a few blocks away. And, you know, obviously this is terribly dangerous, and yet they don't want it to be a prison. So somebody thought, well, we'll just put a, a bus stop right outside the door, and voila. Uh, they'd look out every once in a while. There's somebody sitting there at the bus stop, and they sit and talk to them for a while, and then at some point they just get up and go back in. And they had no problems whatsoever after that, except that once in a while uh, 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 somebody would just be sitting there who wasn't a patient. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, now, again, I think there's a little tiny problem there. Uh, I don't know how they, I don't, you know, there must, should be some kind of indication. But I don't know exactly how you do it. May, I thought maybe make it like one of, one of those, uh, 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 you know, like those toys outside McDonald's or something, you know, one of the, uh, uh, look like a uh, uh, <laughs> Land uh, 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 bus stop or something. Perhaps the same can be said when, sorry, excuse me, I'm repeating myself here. <clears throat> I cannot see, at least on general grounds, that one can speak in such a way to someone overcome by passion, but understanding, while understanding the speaker to refer to his speech to reality. Uh, but no doubt many other circumstances can be posed along these lines. Sometimes you do speak to someone who's angry, and you're, you're, the tone of voice makes clear, uh, I understand what you're saying, this is... Uh, this is what's making you angry, da 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 and it's clear that you're not saying that's really the truth, but you understand why he conceives it that way. No, no, no uh, uh, lying going on there. In all cases where a statement lacks straightforward material clarity, it seems to me, the statement must be made so that it is possible for the speaker to understand the qualification with which it is stated. Honesty, I think, even demands that the speaker prefer that the one who hears understands this. Now, other virtues, though they do not principally concern the truth in speech, give rise to other difficulties. Though a lie cannot be the instrument of honesty, perhaps another virtue can use the lie to its proper end. But this is not so, both in light of the general notion of virtue or excellence, 
and in light of the proper nature of each virtue. The pursuit of this question, according to the species of each virtue, may seem unprofitable and otios. But in fact, love of Christian perfection does not aim merely at settling what the right action is and doing it. This love admires the complete Christian life as resplendent with the truth and beauty of its exemplars, Jesus Christ and his mother, Mary. So Isaiah teaches, With joy I will rejoice in the Lord. My joy shall be joyful in my God. For he has dressed me up in the clothes of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as the groom decked out in his turban and as the bride adorned with her jewels. Now on a general consideration, without attention to the definition of a particular virtue, no virtue can employ a lie from the fact that virtue is, from its nature, integral or holistic. This is particularly clear to one considering that the proper conception of virtue is excellence. One cannot have one of the excellences proper to the whole of human life without having the others. And one of these others is, and one has these others in proportion to the one. The measure of any man's virtue, real virtue, not natural virtue, but real virtue, uh, the measure of any man's real virtue is the weakest of his virtues. So any, vir- so any other virtue that used a lie in operating against the virtue of honesty would destroy the integrity with which a man possesses virtue. Or rather, it would manifest that such integrity was apparent rather than real. Again, every Christian act proceeds through an explicit or implicit act of faith. Can faith be the principle of anything fallacious? Consideration of this question according to the character of each virtue demands identification of those virtues that give rise to the difficulty. Among the supernatural virtues, faith, hope, and charity, only charity seems able to occasion difficulty. In virtue of his love of neighbor, a Christian must do him good and prevent his harm. By charity, it seems, a man will... Again, by charity, it seems a man will speak of his neighbor as better than he knows him to be. Again, as a general virtue, charity may direct other virtues to use the lie from a love of neighbor. All the intellectual virtues, such as science and prudence, concern truth as it exists in the intellect. Falsehood in speech seems incompatible as an instrument of intellectual virtue. Even prudence would not use falsehood in determining and commanding what a man must do. But prudence considers truth in the intellect with regard to action in the world, and this may give occasion to such difficulties. If any moral virtue can use a lie, prudence must be involved insofar as it directs these virtues. Again, prudence must be used in the act of hiding the truth, which many think is merely a rationalization or justification of an act of lying. The objects of temperance and of its parts, with one exception, seem too remote from speech to give such occasion. But humility is a part of temperance, and clearly the humble man is thought to speak of himself as worse than he is. The same seems true of bravery and all its parts, 
the matter seems too remote, except magnanimity. Though the magnanimous man is frank, he is also said to use irony in speaking to men inferior in character. Again, justice is concerned with truth in speech insofar as this involves some obligation to tell the truth by positive law. For this reason, justice must have some concern with whether such an obligation exists. And that that touches upon these questions. Likewise, some parts of justice, such as piety, affability, or friendliness, and even a virtue concerned with play, give rise to difficulties that will be given later in detail. I'll consider the difficulties that arise from the use of these virtues in the following order. First, I'll examine the possibility that charity or prudence could direct another virtue to employ some lie by directing that virtue to act for a higher end. Second, I will consider in order the various ways in which some think that particular virtues employ the lie, charity, piety, friendliness, playfulness, magnanimity, and humility. Third, I will consider how prudence and justice determine to whom the truth is owed and how prudence can hide the truth without prejudice to the virtue of honesty. I'm not going to actually read all that. You'll be led here. Now, charity can only understand, sorry, now charity can only be understood, so far as I can see, to direct another virtue to use a lie from its love for neighbor. The love for God in itself can bear no falsehood whatsoever in the words one speaks immediately to God. The lie from love of neighbor is a lie told through the duty to love one's neighbor, and thus it gets the name, the dutiful lie. This duty involves a concern for a neighbor's goods, the good of his body and the good of his soul. External possessions, too, sorry. Such goods can obviously be better than the truth that is hidden by a white lie. The Hebrew midwives, when ordered by Pharaoh to kill all male Hebrew children at birth, must have thought this when they lied and told him that the Hebrew women bore their children before the midwives could attend them, if they lied then. The first and most general problem that arises from the claim that charity is a principle in telling a lie affects every other suggestion that a particular virtue might use a lie, since charity directs the work of every Christian virtue toward God. The difficulty is rooted in the divine nature and the procession of persons in the Blessed Trinity. The Holy Spirit only proceeds from the Father through the Word. Likewise, the exterior act of charity, sorry, the interior act of charity only proceeds from grace through the truth of Christ in us. Again, the exterior charitable words can only proceed through the truth in our exterior works and deeds. Every lie impedes the flow of charity from within. I'm I'm going to skip a a little bit here. Uh, Again, the judgment assumes that love for neighbor can operate independent from the love for God. But everything the Christian soul utters, it utters in the presence of the truth of Christ dwelling in many ways within Precisely as no one would willingly appear ugly before the beauty that entrances him, so the Christian soul, by using the love of God that springs from its charity, flees the stain of falsehood in the ravishing presence of that infinite truth. Yet again, because of the dependence of love for neighbor upon the love for God, through charity a man loves his neighbor as a God by supernatural participation. He loves Christ in him. 
Just as Blessed Teresa of Calcutta saw Christ in the dying she found upon the street and consoled Christ at Calvary in them, so the charity we so through charity we speak to Christ existing in others according to the various conditions proper to the man in question whenever we speak to another. Prudence directs the other virtues by determining and commanding what is to be done. Prudence, it seems, may direct a virtue to use a lie by judging that lie the most efficient way to attain the end. Christian prudence, some argue, recognizes that eternal life and the preservation of human life, especially Christian souls, are such great goods that the lie, lie, deficient only in its words, must be employed or can be employed. Some argue this way about lying in the fight against abortion. This difficulty was solved earlier insofar as it is implicit in the lie that seems to be motivated by charity. I add here only that prudence has human happiness and Christian prudence... Sorry. I add here only that Christian... I had, add here only that prudence has happiness, human happiness, and Christian prudence has beatitude as their ends only insofar as these have an integrity in the human soul known properly by prudence itself. Christian prudence only determines what will attain beatitude in light of such integrity, which includes attention to all of Christian excellence, including honesty. Now, several virtues can be imagined to employ a lie immediately toward their own proper object, Charity, piety, friendliness, playfulness, magnanimity, and humility. If anyone knows of another one, please tell me. Uh, I'll consider them in that order, but I'm going to skip all but uh, friendliness and playfulness, okay? uh, which uh, produce a lot of lies, and the sweetest lies. <laughs> Excellence in amiability or friendliness is part of justice. Like honesty... This virtue falls short of justice taken strictly because it does not follow a debt imposed by positive law. The obligation arises from nature and from various circumstances of nature. A great variety of lies seems to spring from this virtue. People often imagine these lies to be inspired by charity, but in fact they're inspired by a sense of affection or a sense of obligation to feel affection for another. Such obligations are very real, the dysfunctional family or, decaying, or any decaying society will always have some disorder regarding these obligations. Thinking of these obligations, some tell lies to make another feel better or because he is not ready for the truth or even to prepare him for the truth. Perhaps some of the lies that doctors tell belong to the species, the affectionate lie. Some think the usual answer to the question, how are you? to be this sort of lie. I don't, but... Falsehood of this sort can obviously exist as well as in physical signs of affection, the handshake, the embrace, the kiss goodbye. Uh, Think, uh, this is, I think, why Jesus addressed Judas, friend, do you betray me with a kiss? Use the instrument of this virtue of friendliness. Such falsehood can replace the original affection between husband and wife. 
terrifying thing, misery. Uh, the first thing to pay attention to in the conception of the affectionate lie is that the speaker assumes the person he speaks to does not want to hear the truth. This indicates a problem in the relationship much deeper than is indicated by the difficulty itself. No doubt deficiencies in the virtue of friendliness are involved in this problem. The sense that an affectionate lie might help implies that the speaker is vaguely aware of this. But the virtue of friendliness or amiability cannot, of its nature, encourage such interaction between people. This particular excellence in living life establishes the agreeability in daily interactions with others that provides the foundation for the truest friendship founded on common excellence. Very many people, including those proposing the morality of such lies, think that most of what others say to them is not true. How can this be a foundation for friendship? The truth is that many people suffer intensely their whole lives because they experience all human interaction as made false by such lies. Some experience this almost immediately from one parent or even from both. The world of human action becomes for such people a wall that paradoxically separates the very people it joins. This is one of the sufferings Christ came to save us from. The dynamics at work in the affectionate lie are utterly at odds with true friendship and so with amiability. The first fault is that the speaker, sorry, the first fault in this the speaker that indicates a deficiency in virtue is that he does not feel pain at the recognition that someone with whom he shares life does not desire to hear what he really thinks. He should fear especially that he may be in some way the cause of this desire. If people refuse to feel such pain, they will be unhappy. The second fault is that he does not seek some way of using what he is now about to say to address this more important aspect of the relationship. This demands the prudence, sensitivity, and discernment to see what he can say to return or begin to return to a healthy, solid bond with his companion. From there, the virtue of friendliness can help other virtues in making the relationship flourish in a manner appropriate to it appropriate to it, and possible. Surprise is often felt to hear that Aristotle and St. Thomas following him identifies the virtue concerned with play or playing around. If I'm right, there is even a Christian playfulness. Now, most of life is serious, and these serious activities are either useful or honest, honorable. Uh, But some activities are and should be done merely for the pleasure of doing them, without any concern, it seems, for the useful or honest good. The ability to go on in the pursuit of serious activity even seems to demand some reprieve in which we just fool around. Uh, St. Teresa of Avila said, without poetry, life would be impossible. The surprise occurs because virtue seems so serious. Uh, This is often the concern that arises in discussion of the lies principally connected with this part of life, the lies we tell in joking. Do these lies really have to be referred to virtue? 
the virtuous seems too serious. I must make two things clear. First, I do not want to suggest that most men should be anxious about the fact they still tell this kind of lie. Many of us have more weighty sins and faults to overcome. That's not something I've observed. I can't say that. (laughs) No, no. Uh, But if excluding this sort of lie belongs to a more advanced spiritual condition, we should desire and always aim at such a condition. Note also, however, that those whose lives are bound to the pursuit of truth should have a particular inclination to struggle even against the tiniest sins, peccata levissima, St. Thomas calls them, incibitsi sins, against the truth. Second, many things believed to be lies and joking are not. When someone tells a joke, he refers his speech to imagination. He He indicates this when he says, have you heard this one? Again, to take on a character and say what that character would say, the fool or the wicked, is merely to speak in persona. The tone of voice indicates this well enough. And many truths can have the cleverness admired in the lies used in jokes. For example, a question cannot be a lie, though it can be very funny. In this very room, I was sitting at table with... uh, uh, Kel Cater, uh, Christina Cater's father, and uh, now Father Joe Levine, uh, classmates, and men uh, just temperamentally, utterly uh, uh, incompatible. Uh, they, lo- they are great friends now, but uh, uh, just temperamentally, they don't, they're oil and vinegar. And, uh, I won't say which is which. Uh, uh, <laughs> those who know them know. Uh, um, <laughs> uh, uh, and so I had a table, I said, and we were about to move into a new dorm, and I said to them, has the dean told you guys that in the new dorm, uh, you guys are going to have to room together? <laughs> uh, and I just sat back, and for f- about 15 minutes, uh, 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 I just heard it. Uh, uh, it was incredible. Uh, uh, Mr. Cater got it first. Uh, finally, I had to, had to tell... Uh, 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 Mr. Levine, now Father Levine. That was just a question. I didn't. (laughs) I don't know why he'd tell you that. (laughs) The principal error in the objection lies in pitting the serious and the rational together against the playful. Reason, which is concerned with truth, the objector thinks, is concerned with the serious and should leave playtime alone. This is why it seems strange there should be some excellence in play. But just as it is reason that distinguishes, sorry, just as it is reason that recognizes that life divides into the serious and the playful, so reason guides both parts of life so that they are integrated into an excellent human life. The playful is made more appropriate to the need one has for relief and more complementary to the greater and more important part of one's life. Works out in its own way in every single life, every single virtuous life. Laughter and joking are a particular part of playing around. The objection resents the fact that reason's order to the truth should try to govern joking. This itself is a failure to see that risibility 
is rooted, laughability, the ability to laugh, is rooted in reason. We see the role of reason in joking, even in our laughter at the buffoon and the April fool. Reason laughs at them. Through the credulity of the fool, the April fool's joke manifests the cleverness of the joker. Yet such joking also turns against someone's reason. The buffoon is a buffoon. I made an April fool of you. Against such jokes, the common conception that wit sparkles suggests attention to the excellence of wit and reason in the witty joke. Such attention leads us to understand reason as something at once agreeable and admirable. The buffoon, however, especially when he seems to enjoy his own buffoonery, suggests that clownishness and vulgarity are what men really enjoy. Now, I wish to leave much room for taste and circumstances. Still, the joke that uses the truth and wit, even when it imitates the lie, what they call the nieto lie in, in <laughs> the sophomore class, I guess. Uh, the, the joke that uses the wit and truth, sorry, the joke that uses wit and truth, even when it imitates the lie, implies respect for the person spoken to. The laughter wit provokes depends much less upon the hearer's mistaken understanding than upon his seeing the accidental power truth has to cause falsehood. This itself is a principle of bringing men together to admire reason and enjoy the best part of their nature. Be glad to see me turning pages here. These detailed considerations about particular virtues have attempted at once to achieve three purposes. First, they show that a Christian cannot use a lie by means of any virtue according to the character of the virtue in question. Second, they also reveal the integrity of virtue, such that one sees better how all the parts of a virtuous soul work together to integrate an excellent, happy life for a man and his companions in life. Third, they show that just as Christ cannot bring forth the lie in any of his members, neither can the member bring forth a lie from the truth that Christ has caused in them. Now, the third question posed was whether the Christian's ultimate end of supernatural beatitude is consistent with an act of lying. Now, beatitude is perfect happiness. So I prefer to begin here with a conception of the movement toward happiness that I find both in Plato and in Aristotle, though more explicitly in Plato. This is the conception of the search for happiness as a movement toward the light. This is clearly most explicit in Plato's cave analogy. According to this understanding of the pursuit of happiness, Man comes to be in darkness. In Aristotle's thought, this is the human potential intellect. Man's first years of life, his infancy, are lost in darkness amid the benumbing torrent of sensible beings and sensible images until some light appears, not outside him among things sensible, but within his intellect. 
This light is some conception, some truth by which he knows something. As St. Thomas says, truth is the light of the intellect. By the same light, the man rules his life. Thus, Aristotle describes the human intellect as the part of the soul by which the soul knows and is prudent. Insofar as the man uses this light to pursue light, he finds more light and more and more. He discovers others in whom there is some light. Through friendship and political community, he pursues light with those others. And this continues until he climbs out from the cave and sees the divine first principle of all things, the good itself. Now this is happiness. This understanding of the search for happiness is wholly consonant with Christ's teaching about eternal beatitude. Men stumble in the darkness unless they find his light. This is why he came. As light, I came into the world so that everyone who believes in me may not remain in darkness. This light is the virtue of faith. Those who find that light walk toward more light. And if they do walk in his light, they walk toward uncreated light. At death or after purgatory, not as necessary as we think, uh, the Christian at last takes his last step out of the cave and into light. This uncreated light, beatitude, is the Godhead as it exists in Jesus Christ. And this is eternal life, to see you, the only true God, and him whom you have sent, Jesus Christ. This is nothing other than seeing at once the truth of the divinity immediately in the divine word, and that same truth as it exists in the manner proper to the visible word, Jesus Christ. Now it seems to me, considering this question merely in light, excuse me, uh, now it seems to me, considering this question merely in the light of the ultimate end of beatitude, that no lie can be the means to this end. This would mean that darkness can illuminate a man on his way toward uncreated light. Unless someone object that I argue here metaphorically, keep in mind that in sacred theology, light can be used according to a proper understanding, insofar as it signifies that which brings about illumination. In summary, this reflection upon lying through consideration of the truth as it exists in Christ suggests that every lie still shares in darkness, in the rejection of light, from which Christ came to liberate us. Every lie in its own way, large or small, says no to the light, while Christ can only say yes. All lies in their form reject the truth in some way. Some lies reject the truth of reality, others the truth of the intellect. Still others reject the communication of truth to others. And yet, the only power their words can have, they obtain by imitating the very word of truth whom they simultaneously mock. I can hardly conceive the ordinary Christian life in which one does not discover many times, many, 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 many times, that he does not love the truth as much as he should. And I speak here of myself. One sign of this is our complacency with small lies. Another sign we do not yet love the truth as much as is possible may be 
our resistance to the truth, St. John teaches, that no lie comes from the truth. What answer will we give to the Christ who said, referring merely to the vain word, I tell you that every vain word that men speak, they shall render an account of it in the day of judgment. But this is to look at Christ as he exists outside us, insofar as we still dwell partially in darkness. And this attention to darkness is precisely the legalistic approach focused on guilt and blame I am striving to reject here in this reflection in favor of another approach to such questions, a movement toward light that I have learned from the teaching of St. Thomas. By the light that flows from the Gospels into and throughout St. Thomas' doctrine and from that doctrine to our minds, the same Christ who makes this warning to our darkness from outside lives seated interiorly as the light of the Christian soul and waits to fill that soul utterly with light and truth. Each day he offers to bring into us the light of his truth through the blessed sacrament. We believe that light lies there in the sacrament, hidden to the darkness of the sensible world, hidden in this this cave of unintelligible surfaces and false lights with which we feel so comfortable. A dazzling darkness we so often prefer to the darkness of faith. The shimmering of the richest jewels and most precious metals are nothing whatsoever to the light reflected by the excellences that Christ's truth causes in the Christian soul, your soul. Some of these are like a glittering turban. They reflect a spiritual, invisible light within the intellect and will. Others are like jewels put on for a special occasion, These shine in our extraordinary exterior actions by proportioning such actions to the interior light. Yet others, such as Christian honesty, Christian magnanimity, and Christian humility, are like the wedding band the bride never takes from her hand. They immediately express our devotion and commitment to that interior light by giving true substance true meaning, and true power to all our words. Thank you.